。历史长河，时而。Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern-day unipolarity is precisely like that. The West is leading. Ukraine down the Primrose Path. We don't have enough tanks. We don't have enough vessels. We don't have enough planes to bring chip productions here to the U.S. Welcome to Multipolarity. I'm Gavin Haynes. I produce Multipolarity every week,、uh, slaving over a hot record button. Uh, with me, as ever, are the hosts Philip Pilkington. Hi, everybody, and Andrew Collingwood. Hello. This week we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We are having a Q and A edition, as we've trailed for a couple of weeks previous. We've had a few questions through from our listeners, but there was one question in particular from a gentleman called Jonathan Story that we'd like to splash on. Because it concerns a man who keeps coming up in the multipolarity group chats that we have behind the scenes, and that is Mr. Peter Zehan.、Uh, Mr. Peter Zehan wrote a book called "The End of the World Is Just the Beginning: Mapping the Collapse of Globalization,"、uh, and more lately he had a breakout interview on Joe Rogan,、uh, clips of which seem to go quite viral for、uh, a show about. Geopolitics and the emerging multipolar world order. I think it's fair to say that our opinion of Mr. Zehan is slightly sceptical. I think he has a lot to say. A lot of it is interesting, but I think what we'd like to do, as much as anything, is to use some of the the points that he makes to think more closely about some of the challenges. But I think. The, Most of what will be said here today will be almost contra Zehan, won't it, Philip? Yeah, I think、um, as you say, Zehan raises some interesting points. He definitely raises interesting topics, which is, I think,、um, why he's been so successful. But、um, yeah, when we were going through some of the stuff earlier, I think,、uh, and we'd obviously talked about him in the past,、um, it's not immediately convincing, at least not. To me, so I'm just going to read through Jonathan Story's question, and then it's going to break down into four subparts. We're going to take each one in turn, and I'm going to turn to both of you guys and get you to to talk through some of the implications of what Zehan says, where he might be correct, and where you think he he strays or overreaches. So, Jonathan Story says, "Dear Andrew and Philip." I was wondering if either of you have read Peter Zehan's latest book, "The End of the World Is Just the Beginning: Mapping the Collapse of Globalization." I'm currently about halfway through and finding a fascinating, although troubling, read. It's made some waves. The author was interviewed on Joe Rogan recently, and I'd be very interested in your thoughts, seeing as his book is very multipolarity in the themes it raises. His basic thesis is that the American-led order, as he calls it, always with a capital O, that enabled genuinely global trade and general world security, is now breaking down, with catastrophic, indeed potentially apocalyptic, consequences for all but the United States. In particular, I'd be interested in your take on the following of his points. And point one, which we'll turn to now, 
is this. Owing to its unique geographic and other features, a safe international neighbourhood, a relatively young population, abundant agricultural land, internal waterways and energy independence, among others, the US is the only country with the ability to sustain itself as the world crumbles. I'd like to turn now to the lads and ask them, basically, true or false, Andrew Collingwood, do you see the US as a country with the internal waterways, I guess, and the energy independence to uh, survive into the 21st century in, in a way that, you know, Eurasian countries, China, Russia, etc., uh, can't. Is there, you know, an essential cleavage between the, the safe North American hemisphere and the, and the rest of the world that would render, you know, the US able to to survive in some kind of, I don't know, mid-century, you know, kind of winner-takes-all scenario? I think on this tightly defined point, Zeyan, Zeyan is generally correct in saying that the United States is quite uniquely placed and uniquely fortunate in its geographic location. The first thing is that it's by far the greatest power in its local neighbourhood. Uh, it's only bordered by two countries, one of which is Mexico, which is chaotic, much poorer, and militarily not even in the same league as the United States. And to the north it has Canada, which is has a tiny fraction of America's population, um, and it also has a much, much smaller military. So there's no real military threats to the West and East. It's got fish in huge oceans, which separate from the rest of the world. Um, in addition to that, it uh, is one of the few countries in the world with genuine continental size. Of course, there are others like Australia, China, Russia, uh, Brazil. But it, it, it's one of those few countries with generally co genuinely continental size. It's blessed with an abundance of natural resources, both agricultural uh, and also mineral, hydrocarbon, uh, metals, uh, ferrous, non-ferrous, even rare earths if it bothers to mine them. Um, and it also has uh, tremendous manufacturing power still and even more capacity if it care to develop it. It has great intellectual resources. I mean, a great many of the top 30 universities in the world are located in the United States. Um, it has, until fairly recently, a quite stable uh, political system and uh, still compared with most of the countries, I would say, a stable political system. Uh, it has an extremely well-developed financial system, a deep uh, sovereign bond market, and all the sorts of ingredients that you need for a, a, a first-class country are contained within America. It has, it, of course, if deglobalization happened, the U.S. economy would take a hit, but... It is uniquely placed in terms of its security, its its natural resources, its human resources. I forgot to mention it's got a population of 330 million officially, maybe 340, even 350 unofficially. So it's got a large population as well. And, and because of these natural resources, it probably could fall back in upon itself and survive in a deglobalized world. Um, in that, I think that it, on this particular point, I think Zehan's absolutely correct. We'll get to the other three points where I think Mr. Zehan's um, 
prognosis or diagnoses and prognoses are uh, somewhat more questionable, but on this, he's 100% right. By the way, on the internal waterways question, I, I, I know you kind of giggle at that, but I think the point that they're trying to make here is that um, transporting goods by by water is always cheaper and more efficient than transporting them on land, right? Like a big container ship with tens of thousands of containers is easier than transporting each, con- you know, every two containers by truck, right, or by rail. Um, and it's the, you know, the same with rivers. And the nice thing about the U.S. is you've got the, uh, the Mississippi, Missouri, Red Rock, uh, river system, which is huge and, and, and really connects a lot of the key farmland, um, and key, uh, industrial centers, uh, in the U.S. to the ocean, the open ocean. Whereas countries like, say, Russia, which also have grand and, and, and huge rivers from, you know, the Volga, in uh, the European part of Russia. Uh, and, you know, as you go farther, even bigger and grander rivers, but they empty into the Arctic Ocean, into the Caspian Sea. Uh, that you, you know, they're not emptying into the ocean in the same way that the American ones are, uh, are working. So that's the kind of waterways question answers. But anyway, my point is that I think Zehan is absolutely correct. U.S. has a tremendously strong geographical situation. It's it, it's blessed with a bounty of natural resources. It's developed tremendous intellectual resources. It's got a large population, stable political system, and a strong and large financial system. So, yes, on this point, Zayan is correct. Philip Pilkington, I guess the contrast that's being made here is with China and maybe Russia. Obviously, China is sort of famously... Uh, a hard place to feed and lacks for a lot of those kind of strategic assets. But I don't know, is there a a world in which a kind of, you know, almost getting very theoretical, in which a kind of a a China-Russia hybrid, as we're starting to see now, is viable? You know, I mean, how how deep into this projection are we getting? Yeah, so, I mean, I've heard this um, line repeated a few times. Uh, I think it's good to kind of break it down into three. The first one is security. Um, America's always been uh, famous for the fact that it's one of the most secure countries in the world. It took over from Great Britain in that regard. Um, Both are islands. That's always been the idea. So mounting an invasion of them is very difficult. Um, Now, I would say this is redundant today. Um, We always, uh, one thing that irritates me in geopolitical discussion and geostrategic discussion is we continue to have these debates about, for example, amphibious landings, the potential for amphibious landings in the United States or the United Kingdom when they're long past their sell-by dates. Nuclear weapons render these considerations largely redundant. I mean, it's just a fact. You, You can't have a war, in my opinion, much larger than the current war in Ukraine without it developing into a nuclear conflict. Maybe something around Taiwan, but the moment that the territorial integrity of a nuclear armed power is breached, you assume that nuclear war will follow. So nuclear weapons turn Russia and China into islands. That's just a fact. And if anyone wants to debate that, they have to make the case that you can have a situation where the territorial integrity of a nuclear armed power is massively breached and it doesn't escalate into nuclear war. And I don't think that's a credible case to make. So while that is true in the past, I don't think it's it's much of a strategic advantage. Now, there are some advantages to it, but it's not what it was. 
Um, I think that the stuff around resources and so on is a little bit mythologized as well. Um, we won't talk about farming. That's a complex topic. United States agriculture is very heavily subsidized. And I would argue that's why it's so large. I think the relative food quality in the U.S. is very poor. I think anyone who's lived there temporarily, I have twice. You tend to put on quite a bit of weight. Food doesn't feel healthy to me. Um, now that could be fixed with regulation. That is not something inherent in the in the in the soil or anything like that. But it's very striking if you've lived there versus if you've lived in Europe. The final the final one is is resources, at least from this point of view. And I think again, this is slightly mythologized. Just to give some statistics, um, the United States, as of twenty twenty two, produced about eleven point eight million barrels of oil a day. Uh, that's first place. That's first place. But Russia produced 10.3 million a day. So not much off. Now, Russia has half the population, less than half the population of the United States. So in a situation of autarky, where no one's trading and everyone's set up their little fortifications, who's got more oil? Well, Russia has more oil. Saudi Arabia has more oil, too, because you got to think of it oil per capita. China does not have that advantage. And when you join China and Russia together, the United States probably has an advantage. But the fact of the matter is, if the, we really retreat into single countries, Russia seems to me to have an energy advantage over the United States. And so does Saudi Arabia. And so do probably a few other smaller countries. Not to say US oil production isn't impressive, not to say their energy production isn't impressive, but that's the reality. The other reality is that they ran an energy deficit until the fracking revolution came in. And the fracking revolution is now gone. So they'll probably go back into deficit, energy deficit in the next 10 years, unless something drastically changes. So the resources picture, I think, is pretty good relative to, it depends on who you're comparing it to. Relative to China, yeah, it's pretty good. Relative to Europe, yeah, it's pretty good. Relative to Russia, no, not really. I think Russia's got a more credible claim to being energy independent than the United States. Um, and in an autarky situation and, you know, a Mad Max situation where people are fighting each other for petrol, uh, or gas, as they call it in the US. Uh, yeah, I think Russia's got the advantage there. The other question then is, so I'd consider that kind of long-term resource um, uh, capability. But I think the real question today is um, is the more short-term or medium-term uh, issues, which are that the whole American economy, we've talked about this multiple times on the podcast, is addicted to Chinese capital goods. If the Chinese embargoed America tomorrow, it's end game for the U.S. economy. You, you you see plenty of stuff floating around um, that the U.S. has produced has forgotten to produce an awful lot of this stuff, and they could probably learn again. They're an innovative and intelligent people, but it would take a while. And if things really go down the Zeihan route, which they might, or some version of it, I think that is going to be the immediate disadvantage to America that they'll realize that so much of their industrial capacity and their machine tools and their capital goods are just reliant on China, basic stuff. Um, I think that will be the most immediate uh, source of pain. Secondary to that, their high reliance on their mortal enemy in Asia, holding an awful lot of their government debt and their foreign currency reserves. Again, we've discussed it before. So I, I'm not I'm not saying that you're that the US doesn't have an advantage, but I think this advantage used to be historically talked about with reference to Britain. Assuming that the Soviet Union was its own entity and assuming that the rest of the world was basically second rate. 
but that's not the world we live in anymore. So the United States still has advantages, energy advantages and so on, geographic advantages to Europe, not necessarily to other countries. And I don't think they have an energy advantage. I think just to respond to Philip on a couple of those points, uh, I, I would assume Zahan and certainly I, as, as somebody far less learned than Mr. Zahan, uh, would say that it's not a matter of just oil or just food or just manufacturing potential. It's, it's the U.S., the combination of all of these things, you know, it's like a, what makes, um, a, you know, great football. I mean, other footballers might have be just as skillful or just as good as passing or just as good as tackling. But sometimes you get one footballer who's really good at all three of those things. And that's a bit like, uh, a bit like the US in its, its natural resources regarding the nuclear issue. Uh, you know, I don't think anyone's going to invade the US, uh, just as I don't think anyone's going to invade mainland China. The point with its security is that it simply doesn't have to worry about its near abroad, right? What they, it doesn't have to worry about what Canada or Mexico are, are, are doing. They're, they're no threat to it. Whereas other countries, as we see with regard to China and Taiwan or uh, Russia and Ukraine or uh, any number of other large uh, powers do indeed have to worry about what's going on in their own neighborhood. And because the U.S. is, is uniquely a, a regional hegemon, it, it, that allows it to push its energies outward into the world, essentially. It, it can do that because it doesn't have to worry about its rear uh, so I think that's the point I would make there. And, and, and finally, one thing I would say to all of Philip, of Philip's very good points actually is that just because the US is in a great position doesn't mean that it doesn't play its hat. It's not playing its hand very badly. Uh, you know, I think that the US has been dealt the best hand of cards at the table. It's just playing them pretty badly at the moment. It really is. And I think. It, it, it's testimony really to the natural strength and, 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 um, and latent power that the U.S. holds that it's been able to play its cards so badly for so long. And it's still perhaps the most powerful country in the world, all told across all spectra uh, in, in which you might measure that. So I think those are my three responses to what Philip has said. And to move on to the second part of the question, which again concerns the US, uh, and I guess has an almost, um, it has a, there's something quite hypothetical about the scenario that Zehan paints, which is that um, the withdrawal of US Navy from international sea lanes will lead to an explosion of state and private piracy leading to a breakdown of supply chains, notably in the production and shipment of oil. Um, I guess one thing I'd like to know uh, above that is what it means for the US to withdraw from international sea lanes. Uh, Andrew, you seem to be the, the go-to guy on international sea lanes. What actually would that look like? Under what circumstances would that take place in the first place? Well, I, th I think let's just be clear about what Zehan is is arguing here. Let's not just say that he's saying that the U.S. is going to retreat uh, back in on itself and the U.S. Navy is going to disappear from the high seas. I, I don't think he's quite arguing that. I think what he's arguing is that um, every U.S. president since George W. Bush has been progressively more popularist. And their rhetoric, at least, has 
suggested that they want to be less involved in foreign wars and foreign adventures and focus more on the uh, internal affairs of the US itself. Uh, Zehan kind of draws a straight line from there to kind of infinity, which is one of my main kind of criticisms of him. He, he tends to extrapolate a lot about enormously complicated issues that um, have a great many outcomes. They, you know, what, what, what we might call fat, a fat tail of potential outcomes. And he extrapolates to infinity and he, he, he makes points that with incredible amount of certitude and confidence in his, in his predictions. So I think what he's talking about here is he's, he's talking about an increasing um, isolationist streak within the rhetoric of US presidents. And therefore they will withdraw military uh, presence from non-core areas of interest. So they withdraw from places like Europe, the Middle East, where they've been heavily involved, and perhaps sub-Saharan Africa as well. And they'll focus on core areas of interest. So they're probably their own sea lanes, but also Southeast Asia. So he argues, my understanding, that the, the, the US will still be there policing sea lanes around Japan, for example. Okay. But what they won't be there doing is kind of policing the Atlantic approaches to Europe or the Mediterranean or the Suez Canal. Now, I'm, I'm not altogether certain that's true. Uh, I, I mean, US presidents can talk all they like. And it is indeed true that, you know, like Obama wanted to, you know, draw down presidents, uh, presence in, uh, Afghanistan and, and he had a, you know, the, the tendency to want to get out of Iraq he, he he with he did get involved in Libya but you know he voted again you know he was one of the few democratic senators if you remember that voted against the war in Iraq and 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 that was key to him beating Hillary Clinton in the democratic primary when Obama first was elected president uh, I'm not sure if listeners can remember or they're old enough even to remember but but that's in fact true his record of voting against Iraq when it was clear already clear that it had been a disaster for the US, not to mention the Iraqis. Um, that was key. So, you know, Obama was there. He wanted to shut down Guantanamo as well, if you remember, um, which was very, you know, uh, an indication that he wasn't so into the war on terror. Uh, certainly Trump, who came after him, was very much against American adventurism. His, his rhetoric in the Republican primaries when he got elected was furiously against all of these kind of uh, foreign adventures and the war on terror. Uh, and, he, and as a president, even, he seemed to want to get out of those countries. He really tried to get out of Afghanistan. And then, of course, you have Biden, who, again, seemed to have a different view to um, Hillary Clinton and, uh, you know, the, the, the Democrat establishment. And he did indeed withdraw from Afghanistan. Now, look at the reality here. Obama did not shut Guantanamo. He increased the drone war, um, massively against uh, other countries. He didn't get out of Iraq. He didn't get out of Afghanistan. He went to war in Libya and he, and he attacked Syria quite significantly and he really quite seriously um uh, supported the syrian uh, rebels as they were called the insurgents against assad likewise trump he also attacked syria he uh he didn't manage to get out of afghanistan uh, u.s troops were still in syria when uh, trump was involved um 
you know, not really much seemed to happen. Now, I do believe that the US is going to slowly withdraw from the Middle East. I think that they're going to slowly withdraw from Europe. However, the US Navy will still be there. And that's, and that's the key here. The US Navy will still be there. I think the US might become something like, you know, like a central bank is, uh, a lender of last resort. They're not necessarily the market maker, but the lender of last resort. And, and maybe the US in Europe in 10 years time, it'll no longer be the market maker in terms of the defense of Europe, but it will be the defender of last resort. And, and perhaps something similar in the Middle East as, as countries become balancing powers. But even if the US Navy dis, you know, disappeared from the Atlantic, disappeared from the Mediterranean, disappeared from the Indian Ocean, um, I still find it difficult to imagine that, you know, piracy and privateering is just going to destroy global supply chains. Like this, it doesn't take an aircraft carrier strike group to take on some Somali pilots in a skiff, right? Like five Marines with a couple of uh, heavy-duty machine guns mounted on the side of a container ship can probably do it, okay? As for state privateering... um, well, the state privateering, you might argue now, I mean, Iran is regularly capturing ships in the Strait of Hormuz. The U.S. Navy doesn't seem to be doing much about that. Um, as for his argument that the U.S. Navy has made globalization possible and made peace possible, kept the world very peaceful and allowed it to trade, well, really? I mean, has the U.S.-led global order achieved peace because since the cold war the u.s seems to have done the opposite right it's it's got involved in a series of very deadly wars they might not have affected the developed world but you know you go to places like serbia or if you look at iraq syria libya afghanistan there's a whole archipelago now of failed or failing states from tripoli to kabul Okay, all in this American global order. So I'm not altogether certain that this stands up to reality or, you know, the realistic outcome of what would happen. Just to dig down a little bit deeper into that, that was just a fantastically detailed answer in and of itself. But um, if I were to picture the U.S. Navy today, we know it's it's very large. We know it's perhaps very active in the South China Sea, for instance. But you know, what are these Navy groups doing day to day in order to uh, patrol and be the sort of top line policemen of the world's oceans? You know, if they withdrew, say, from the Indian Ocean tomorrow, um, what would happen? Are we just saying, as you said, sort of five pirates in a skip would start to, you know, uh, colonize the market and uh, the, the ants would get loose in the, in the mound? Well, I mean, what they're really doing is they're projecting US power. They're, they're, they're saying to the. You know, the, like, so trading routes, maritime trading routes are, uh, on the huge, vast oceans. Okay. But there are certain points around the world through which the majority of trade has to pass. So one we've already mentioned, the Strait of Hormuz. So all of the oil that comes from Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Kuwait, and Iran, and uh, Qatar with gas as well. It has to pass through this really narrow strait, which, and, and, and it's a kind of maritime choke point, essentially. It's all got to pass through there. So it's like a very target rich environment who, and anybody who wants to shut it, it, it's much easier to shut this very narrow strait. The Panama Canal would be one, the, which is on the 
isthmus of the Americas in, in across Panama from the Pacific to the, uh, the Atlantic, the, the Suez Canal from the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea. It goes through Egypt. That's another one. Remember that in 1956, Britain and France, France fought a war over control of the Panama Canal. Okay. This was all under American Pax Americana. The, yeah, sorry, the Suez Canal, excuse me. Like Britain and America, uh, Britain and France fought a war in 56 over the Suez Canal, which was under Pax Americana because we were concerned about that. There's another strait, um, the Strait of Malacca, which kind of Singapore controls, which is why the British set up a, a, a colony in Singapore, essentially. Um, so there are all these kind of choke points, uh, around the world. And I guess the idea is the Americans can protect them, can keep them open. Uh, but ultimately, it's protect, projecting American power. Ultimately, the stakes for this are very high. So countries could potentially go to war over these um, these maritime choke points, right? It, like in theory, you know, uh, maybe the Indians could, um, you, you know, sail their navy to the the eastern, the sorry, the western edge of the Indian Ocean and try to block that end of the Strait of Malacca, and the Chinese would want to, want to get it open. Essentially, that could potentially, uh, this is a hypothetical situation, of course, but maybe Zeyhan saying that, you know, the big dog in the room can control all of these things and let everybody else not worry about them. But I, I you know, I think that ultimately states come to a, you know, agreement on that thing. We've had war before and, um, you know, disagreements happen all of the time and then they've certainly happened under Pax Americana. So I don't, I, you know, I, I I don't see why the U.S. Navy retreating might cause an issue. In fact, as the U.S. increasingly comes into conflict with China, what we're actually hearing is the U.S. Navy being the potential cause of blockades of some of these maritime choke points. We'll get onto this perhaps later when we speak about some of China's disadvantages per Zeihan, but... You know, I don't see the U.S. as being, of course, it's nice to have a global policeman, but I don't see it as being 100% necessary. Philip Pilkington, the second part of Zeyhan's statement, which we haven't really dug into, um, the first part is about the withdrawal of the U.S. Navy from international sea lanes, uh, leading to an explosion of state and private piracy. Um, but Zeyhan goes on to say that that in turn leads to a breakdown of supply chains, notably in the production and shipment of oil. Um, I'm not terribly versed in these things, but that does sound like it's already becoming slightly dated as, as, a, as a piece of wisdom, that the Middle East is becoming less and less relevant as, a, as an oil-producing region, as, as, as more parts of the world open up. And, and perhaps that idea that um, oil is is centralized and then distributed is is simply becoming less relevant also as as other energy sources types open up yeah i mean i think ultimately everything boils down on this to whether the navy would withdraw and whether that would cause this catastrophic decline in trade um i just i think it's really i think I think the view's kind of funny in a way. It's it's so U.S. centric. It's like no one's ever had trade until the U.S. Navy started protecting the world in 1945. Um, it's everything really ties back to that. Is that a, is that an accurate assessment or not? Um, it just seems bizarre to me. I mean, in terms of the 
In terms of the state actors, obviously Andrew's right that there is some privateering in a sense, but I mean, state actors aren't just going to go gangbusters because the U.S. Navy disappears and start engaging in get engaging in bizarre piracy actions. Like, why would anyone assume that? We have a fairly functional diplomatic system uh, in place in the world, which makes major conflicts between serious countries very rare. Why would that be different at sea? I don't understand. In terms of the um, in terms of the conflict with the with the Somali pirates with AK-47s, like if states can't figure out a way to police that, but w- w- between themselves, I just that would be bizarre. Why, why, why would you assume that? It, it's it's it seems to me just all to go back to this assumption that the entire global system totally relies on this U.S. naval power, and almost in a sense always has or was in a sort of dark age of barbarism prior to that. Um, I will say that I think there's one scenario in which uh, American uh, naval power might decline. I agree with Andrew that it's unlikely to come from some sort of political machination. But it could actually, the, the one place where it could come from is effectively what happened in Britain. Um, Britain used to have obviously the largest navy in the world. Britain used to be the quote-unquote guarantor of the high seas. Um, and actually today, Britain still aspires to having a really serious navy and to have a really serious shipping industry. What happened was those industries collapsed. The industries that could support shipbuilding on a mass scale and to support a serious navy have collapsed. It's not really a lack of fit of, of cash money. It's not really, um, due to poor political organization. It's not due to the, to the British politicians losing the desire to be a maritime power. It's due to the collapse in their shipbuilding capacity. And that's due to a bunch of complex reasons. But the fact of the matter is U.S. shipbuilding um, has also declined. It, 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 it's down from about, um, it's down about two thirds from the early 1950s. And it's down by about half from the early 1980s. So U.S. shipbuilding is in decline, and Chinese shipbuilding, for example, is on the up and up. Now, that won't lead to the situation that Zeyhan thinks of international piracy, but it may, it may end up creating a shift in, in, in who's producing the shifts, in who's producing the ships, and, uh, in, 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 uh, who is, who then has to police those waters. Russia also has a substantive shipbuilding industry, as far as I understand it. And apparently, uh, I'm, I'm not an expert in it, but they're, they're the world's leaders in icebreakers, which are very important. And now we're at the halfway turn and we get to what I would consider to be peak Zeyhan, uh, the, the essence of Zeyhan. Um, you know, am I, relatively limited understanding of, of his work he's the guy who saw the phrase demography is destiny and just had it tattooed inside his eyelids and seems to have a very sort of i guess atomistic view of how the world works in that regard that you add more human units and you get more power output on a quite one-to-one ratio um which i have certain sort of obvious intuitive problems with um, but I wonder if you guys can break it down a bit more. So um, how Jonathan Story has summarized the words of, of Zeyhan is to say that Europe is already in a demographic death spiral from which it is too late to extricate itself. So 
I guess I'd go back to you, Philip, in a kind of a, a true or false way. You gave a speech at, at NatCon uh, last week in which you talked about the role of the family and incentivizing birth rates and getting the numbers up. And that seems to be, you know, something of a, of a passion of yours. But do you think that on the European continent as a whole, in terms of projecting power, this demographic death spiral is occurring, is serious and salient? Let's just shelve that for a moment and talk about the positive case that Zahan is making, that um, the United States is some super fertile country. Um, hate to break it to everybody, it's not. Um, the United States uh, was one of the first Western countries, as far as I know, at least the first Anglo countries, to experience sub-replacement birth rates. That's birth rates below 2.1. The United States uh, uh, hit um, below 2.1 in 1971 or 1972, I believe. That was a couple of years even before Britain, which has been known for its stagnant birth rates. It had a little bit of a comeback in terms of its fertility uh, in in the early 90s um, and, and just about sort of kind of maybe climbed up near back to replacement levels. But, but America has not been a historically high birth rate country but funnily enough it's it's median age is about 38 years old which is actually pretty similar to china's so these demographic variables tend to be quite complicated for anyone who's modeled them the you can have a low birth rate right now but because of previously high birth rates you can have a, a nice little median age the reason that the united states has has benefited from a higher labor force growth which I think must be what Zahan is referring to, is due to migration. That's the same reason that their median age is 38, even though they've had stagnant birth rates since the early 1970s. Now, immigration's a pretty mixed bag. Um, just to give a sense of where the United States currently are with immigration, um, they're, they're a bit past, they're close to about 14 or 15% of their population are first-generation immigrants people from other countries. Um, that is the highest it's ever been in the United States. And in order to maintain this demographic dividend that Zeyhan seems to think exists, they have to keep that migration flowing. And it's going to have to reach levels that are much, much higher than anything that America's experienced in the past. Now, there's a couple of things about that. First of all, integration is, is an issue. America's been very good at integrating immigrants because it had a very strong but basically government program to do so. Um, you know, Uncle Sam tells you this and that, and they had a very strict kind of propaganda strategy in schools to to get people to adhere to American values and so on. Th that's not there anymore. Uh, America's dropped the kind of e pluribus unum, you know, out of the many one, and it's adopted an, an ideology of out of the one many, almost the opposite, a, a kind of multicultural ideology. Um, that could increased tensions. Remember, we're not talking about ethnic groups. I don't think that stuff really matters. But having an awful lot of first-generation immigrants, like one in five, one in three, one in four of your population, can start to produce strains. So America's already kind of going past that level that it's ever done before. It's kind of dropped its integrationist uh, stance. And I'm not sure if that's a potentially stabilizing force because it increases your workforce growth or if it's potentially destabilizing force. And if you look at American politics right now, 
It looks kind of destabilizing. Then you compare that with Europe. Look, Europe is older than America because it's at less immigration. Now, it's, it's the, the fertility problems haven't been vastly different. Outside, again, the United States kind of climbed up a little bit in the 90s, maybe due to the high levels of immigration, actually, in fairness. And, um, and Europe stayed stagnant. Um, Europe hasn't had as much immigration historically, so it's ten. It has it has older populations, but the differences between Europe and America in terms of def- demographics aren't that big. And I, again, I think this is kind of a mythology. Will Will Europe uh, experience the problems associated with an aging population faster than America? Yes. Could America see serious political destabilization due to? wildly high rates of immigration before Europe ever sees anything like that? Also, yes. So uh, demographics are complicated. They can be a blessing and a curse. Uh, There are kind of a few hard and fast rules, which we'll probably discuss later relative to China. But it's not, it's a pretty murky picture. And anyone who reads that as America's been having lots of babies for the past 50 years and the rest of the European countries haven't, it's just not true. Go and look at the data. Well, Zahan has one final point to make, which is also, I guess, linked to demographic questions in Europe and America, which would be the relative demographics of China. Um, As it is summarised here by Jonathan Story, it says that China will crumble within the decade due to its population dynamics, indebtedness and over-reliance on international supply chains that are now breaking down. Uh, and Jonathan's story says, NB, he said this in 2010. So I guess it would be good to to think about what what are those factors ha- have changed in and in what direction in the, in the past while. Uh, obviously, the one child policy has been um, superseded now with a have some kids policy. Uh, indebtedness is still as much of an issue as it ever has been. Obviously, there have been some some notable high-profile failures in China uh, since then, but nothing that seems catastrophic. Uh, Certainly, people talk about the property market a lot, don't they? But um, we were all braced for impact, I think, uh, a a year ago now, which never occurred. Um, And then over-reliance on international supply chains that are now breaking down. Um, That's... An interesting thing for Zehan to have flagged in 2010. Uh, Andrew Collingwood, would you say, you know, post-COVID, those effects of, of the supply to the supply chains are baked in now? And how do you read the indebtedness and indeed the population dynamics? Well, I tell you what. How about we start with? Um, uh, I'll do demographics, then you can move on to Philip, who can do the indebtedness because he's our economics guy. And then perhaps I can have something to say about the supply chains. But on demographics, it it is true that China has what looks like a catastrophically low birth rate. Okay, It's like, I think it might even be below one at the moment. Replacement level is... Uh, 2.1 children per uh, woman. And I think China's is perhaps below one at the moment. However, I, I, I'm not persuaded by Zehan's argument for this. And I, I'll, I think there are three levels to my disagreement on this. The first level is that even if China can do nothing 
nothing whatsoever to mitigate its current decline in birth rates. Okay, and I, I think it can do things. We'll get onto that in a moment. But even if it can't do anything, it's still going to be a country by the turn of the next century of 800 million people. Okay, which, you know, even at current levels of US migration would be more than twice the size of the United States in terms of population. And by that stage, given current uh, economic growth, I know Zehan thinks the whole thing's going to collapse very soon, but given current economic growth, that's going to be 800 million people who are probably as rich as Hong Kongers are now or uh, South Koreans are now. That is going to be by far the biggest economy in the world, even if they can do nothing to deal with the demographic problems. Now, I think they can do things to deal with their demographic problems. For instance, it's a, I think it's fair to say, without being unfair to the Chinese system, it's a much less liberal country than we Western countries. And it's a more authoritarian country in terms of its design of government. I think that's not unfair in any way, shape or form. Now, is it beyond the ability of an authoritarian country like that, especially one with such a grip on technology, it seems, such a, uh, a nous for using technology? Is it, is it beyond their ability to, for instance, make having kids super fashionable through TikTok and social media? Is it beyond their ability to give their citizens serious benefits through a social credit system? I don't think those things are any beyond possibility. Nicolae Ceausescu in Romania sought to deal with Roman communist Romanians. Uh, people might not know Ceausescu was the communist leader of, uh, of Romania during the Cold War. Uh, they banned abortion to deal with uh, demography. I'm, I'm not sure if it worked or not. I doubt it did. But is it possible that China could ban abortion, for example? I don't think it is impossible. I'm not saying that I expect them to do it. I'm just saying it's not impossible. So all of those things could happen perhaps to mitigate um, or, or to try to arrest the current uh, demographic decline. They can also deal with it in economic ways. For instance, China is really making a huge bet at the moment on robotics. It's, it's the biggest buyer of, of manufacturing robots in the world. It has great, um, efforts to, um, you know, um, automize its factories and its production. <clears throat> uh, companies like Huawei, of course, we know Huawei because they produce mobile phones and they produce 5G, which have all been quite controversial recently. But they're also very good at, at kind of, uh, you know, commercial and industrial networking. And China is a, is a leader on what probably the, uh, the World Economic Forum would call the fourth industrial revolution, where you use things like 5G and sensors and machine learning and AI and, and use that within factories to automate them to a, a whole new degree, a kind of like, uh, what's hoped is a leap forward similar to the you, you know the ford manufacturing process and the and the moving the moving conveyor belt of manufacturing so all of these things are economic ways that they could you know, you know by offering their citizens benefits uh, banning certain practices uh, offering social credit benefits they can also do it economically for instance they focus a great deal on um, stem graduates so even as 
you know, they get fewer and fewer engineers in theory, well, a greater proportion of their uh, people uh, who graduate from university are engineers. So they can make up for the numbers of people who can actually run the economy and make things just by kind of refocusing the education system, which they're doing at the moment. They, they ha- I think I'm right in saying that they've got more engineering graduates than the rest of the G7 combined. I think that's right, but it, it's some crazy st- statistic. And we're already seeing the fruits of that in the fact that they produce more patents now than the United States. Um, the final thing I would say is I think that demographics is a pretty crude measurement, just saying overall demographics, okay? Because not all people are as productive within an economy. And I'll give you an example of this. Agricultural economies are traditionally much less productive than manufacturing or service economies. It's just the way of the world, the the productivity in having a, you know, like menial people plowing the fields is less than having them in a factory making stuff. Okay. And one of the things that's driven China's economic growth over the last 40 years has been a, a vast wave of urbanization from what was a really quite a kind of an agricultural society into a much more urbanized one. But China is still, is still the only, the 96th most urbanized country in the world. You know, for a variety of reasons, some of which to do with the general level of development within the country and some of which to do with the old kind of Maoist ideology. Agriculture was still a really big thing in, in China until quite recently. And it still is. Now, I think China's only about 60% urbanized and that compares with over 80 for say france which has got a big farming sector and uh, the united kingdom which has got a smaller farming sector but still quite a a decent sized rural population you know people who live in the countryside so it's got a long way to go now what that means is that we can see demographic decline in terms of the overall population but if they just take themselves from being you know the 96th most um urbanized country up to the level of say france or the uk or the us which are all over 80 percent urbanized then that's still a great way to go on kind of economic growth and productivity growth and uh, and utilization of the population itself so and i think that's going to last longer than a decade i mean sehan here reminds me very much of i I think it was either john f kennedy or, or, or dwight eisenhower two presidents of the u.s around late 50s and early 60s they uh, one of them complained about their economist a, a very bearish pessimistic economist that he'd predicted seven out of the last three recessions and uh, zehan reminds me of that with china he's forever uh predicting the collapse of china and that demographics is going to drive it and it's always going to be within the next 10 years but you know it never seems to work out china might collapse through demographic demographic reasons but in 10 years, I, I still think they've got at least 10 years of urbanization to go. As I say, they've got a whole range of economic and legal uh, ways that they could perhaps try to arrest the fall in the birth rate. And even if none of that happens, there's still going to be a country of 800 million people by the turn of the century, which is enormous. So for all these reasons, I think Zayan is perhaps barking up the wrong tree with regard to demog- demographics, or he hasn't perhaps quite got it but maybe i'm selling him short maybe he's looked into all of this and i've missed the point somehow 
Okay, if we look at the question then of indebtedness, Thomson Reuters tells me that China's indebtedness overall, including corporate debt, is 250% of GDP. How does that compare with other major economies? I mean, I know just US government debt is sitting at 130%. Is there a sense in which America can cope with those kind of debts that China can't for certain structural reasons, Philip? Yeah, um, I'll speak to the debt now. I just want to add to the demographics point. Just, um, I totally agree with Andrew. Um, demographics is a very long-term issue. It's not something that causes collapses unless it's the Black Death, but that's a different type of demographic crisis. Just one thing on China. I think, look, I think there's going to be a wave of pronatalism to sweep the world shortly. I think people are becoming very aware of these low fertility rates and getting concerned about them. And I think China's the best place to deal with that for a very simple reason. And you can do it numerically. The, um, I, when I ran the numbers, I found that if, if abortion was banned in the United States, it would increase the birth, the fertility rate by about 0.2 to 0.3. China has two and a half to three times the abortion rate as the US. It's commonly used as contraception in, in China. It's, it's been used since the Mao era. Um, if they banned abortion as, Andrew suggests, I think their birth, their fertility rate would increase by about 0 0.5, 0 0.6, 0 0.7, 0 0.8%, 0.8. And that would almost get them back to, to Western levels. So, and, and that's without even taking into account the tools that they have on hand for, for behavioral modification, if you want to rephrase it that way. So I just wanted to make that point because you can actually put a firm number on that and it wouldn't be hard to do. Um, on the indebtedness question, um, this, I think, is way too oversimplified by way too many people, and Peter Zehan is at the head of that pack. Different debt matters differently, okay? So there's like a hierarchy of debt that's risky, and that hierarchy is stacked differently for the way your economy runs, okay? So I'll try and explain that in some detail. First and foremost, foreign debt is always a risk. Foreign debt occurs when you run a trade deficit. When you run a trade deficit, you go into debt with the rest of the world. You go into debt with the, with the majority or the average of your trading partners. Foreign debt is always a risk because it means that the, the counterparty might sell that debt and that'll put downward pressure on your currency and that can create anything from minor fluctuations in your currency's value to inflation, all the way up to hyperinflation. If you've gone completely gangbusters and you don't have a weak currency and you've been borrowing like crazy from abroad, like South, South American military dictatorships used to do in the mid 20th century before they collapsed into hyperinflation. That's what they used to do, borrow from abroad to fund weapons and so on. And the whole thing collapsed. The, China is not a debtor country on the international scene. It is an international creditor country. The big international debtor country on the global scene is the United States. Now, it's got the dollar hegemony for now. We've talked about dollar dominance on the program before. It may be waning, etc. I don't think that indebtedness is going to destroy the US, although if they got in a conflict with China, it could, because China could dump all the securities pretty quickly. Um, but China is not in an internationally indebted position. So strike that off the, strike that off the list. Okay. That is the most risky debt you can run, international debt. 
So the least risky debt you can run is government debt. Why? Because the government prints the money. It's as simple as that. Government prints the money, it can always pay off its debt. People have probably heard of modern monetary theory. In that sense, modern monetary theory is correct. It's just, it's a logical point. If you print the money, you can always use that money to pay off the debt, if the debt is denominated in that money. It's as simple as that, okay? And if that debt is domestically held, the currency doesn't flow onto the foreign exchange market, so it shouldn't impact the value of the currency. It may cause inflation if you run up too much debt, but you'd see that immediately. That wouldn't be some down the pipe kind of thing. That would be you run up the debt, you try and buy too much stuff in the economy and you get inflation. That's not happening in China at the moment. That did happen in China in the 1990s, but that period of Chinese development's gone. So government debt, largely forget about it. And that's for most countries, unless they don't issue their own currency like in the Eurozone. The middle tier debt, and the one that's kind of um, in liminal space, is private sector debt. That's household debt and corporate debt and financial debt as well. But that's usually just the counterparty of the other two. Um, That can be a risk in a specific sense. That can create debt bubbles in your economy. And we've seen these before. We're actually probably going through, about to go through on right now in the West, in the household, especially the uh, commercial property sector. Um, And there may be other there may be other skeletons and scaries in the closet that we might find out about in terms of the private sector debt uh, this time around. But everyone remembers it in 2008, if you're old enough or if you've read a book about it. That was a classic private sector debt crisis. Households borrowed too much money, pumped up the housing markets, everything crashed. Did we get total social collapse? No, we got a very nasty recession as construction workers were laid off and banks blew up. The banks blew up and had to get bailouts. Okay, that's what happened. Not a good luck, not a great thing to happen to your economy. Here's the secret in China China's not a pure capitalist system. It is what you might call a state directed capitalist system, a state capitalist system, or a quasi command economy. Um, you might even call it an extreme de regime economy in, in the old French sense, but much more extreme than Charles de Gaulle's model of directing some investment to, to some companies. The way the Chinese banking system works is it's effectively state-run. And from what I can tell, it pretty much takes marching orders from the Communist Party. And so when they want to go on a big credit boom, they flush the system with lots of money. And that money either goes toward home building and construction, or it goes into the state-owned enterprises to build very inefficient capital goods, probably roads to nowhere, um, and some very good infrastructure along the way. So it's a mixed bag. Um, That can never really go bankrupt because the entire banking system in China is state-run. Okay, So whenever they run into problems with that private sector debt, what they do is they automatically, you don't like in the US and in the West, we do this same process, but we do it through a political process and it's very messy and people fight each other and so on. In China, it's very simple. When the loans start to go bad, they're all collected. You can almost imagine they're put in a, in a burlap sack. And then the burlap sack is taken down to the People's Bank of China, which is the central bank. And they open a big, a big cellar. And you can't see down, and it's like one of those um, in one of those films where you'd have kind of a, a dungeon which nobody ever goes into, and you have an old man down there with the the long stra- straggly beard, and they throw the bag down there. 
and then they close the gate and they forget about it. Now, that's obviously a metaphor, but it's effectively what happens. What they have done is they've created these vehicles called asset management companies, AMCs. They were created at the end of the 90s and the early 2000s when they had a big spate of corporate defaults due to the massive investment and inflation cycle they went through in the 90s. They created these AMCs and they still exist. And it's almost an automated process now. Now, what impact does this have? None. It doesn't have any impact. And then you go, oh, well, then you can just issue free money and go gangbusters. No, you can't. If they do it too much, they'll create inflation in their economy. They'll build too much housing. They'll try and employ too many builders. They'll invest too much into the inefficient state-owned enterprises, and they'll cause inflation as they crowd out the private sector. But they've learned how to get that right after their experience doing just that and generating double-digit inflation in the 1990s in their rush for growth. So they know how to do it. And you're seeing it right now that the Chinese recovery that we opened up the year with was promised to deliver big. And it's sagging a little bit right now. And the reason it's sagging a little bit is because they they told the banks to pull back a little bit on the housing market credit. That's what it looks like is happening. And I won't guarantee you, but I will bet that in the next six months or 12 months, you'll magically see the housing market revive in China. It's not magic. I've watched it happen four times before in the last 10 years. Housing market dips a little bit, sags a little bit. They look like they're not going to hit their GDP growth target. So they go and they, whatever mechanism they have, they call up the banks and they say, lend, lend again. And that's how the whole system works in China. It is a largely, not largely, semi-state directed investment economy. And then the market economy that exists, exists below this this uh, state directed uh, economy. And that's where you get, you know, normal entrepreneurial companies, a lot of their export sector and so on. Any country, the United States can always clean up a private sector credit mess. It's going to have to do one, in my opinion, in the next year or two. It's done one back in 2008. It's not a good luck, causes a lot of chaos because of the system. Government debt, not really a problem. Ask Japan. International debt, big problem. China don't have it. So that's that's the reality. And it's a, it's a nuanced view. It's more difficult to understand. But um, it's, it's often non-economists that really fall down on this stuff. But economists, I think, have got to know this about the Chinese economy over the past few years, at least those studying it. On supply chains, um, obviously, with Sehan's argument, it's all tied in with his uh, kind of views on the US Navy and you know, et cetera, et cetera. So his argument is is kind of uh, con- contingent and predicated on a whole bunch of other arguments he makes elsewhere. But uh, with regard to um, supply chains, it is, of course, true that, you know, China is, is uh, reliant on supply chains, but that's why it's building a navy, you know. It's already by tonnage got the biggest navy in the world. And right now that's, you know, entirely based – focused on the South China Sea for obvious reasons and and China's eastern seaboard. But that doesn't mean it's always going to be like that. But more importantly than that, perhaps China might have been vulnerable to uh, supply chain issues. For instance, until fairly recently, it it, it got a large proportion of its oil, like 80% from uh, the Middle East, and it had no means of, of protecting that as it passed through the Strait of Hormuz into the Indian Ocean. And especially through the Strait of Malacca. And of course, a great many of China's goods then 
sailed south from the eastern seaboard back through the Strait of Malacca to uh, European markets via the uh, Suez Canal, which we mentioned, and the Mediterranean, and of course the Strait of Gibraltar, which is another famous choke point. Uh, again, one which the, uh, the you know the British have an outpost there. Uh, there's a, a theme running here. So, so, so that was always potentially an issue for China, and and that is indeed what the Chinese started building Belt and Road to deal with. They started trying to build land routes across the Eurasian land mass uh, towards uh, Europe in an effort to, um, in, effort to in, in an effort to mitigate that weakness. They saw what the US did with Japan in the 1930s and the oil embargo, uh, which really uh, pushed Japan ultimately into making a, a fated uh, and, and a hugely risky Hail Mary, which, uh, as a bet didn't pay off, which was the Pearl Harbor attack. But, um, China didn't want to be put in the same position. So they started building Belt and Road. Whether that was something that was going to work out or not is it doesn't matter now because here comes Uncle Sam to solve China's Straits of Malacca problem. And basically what they've done is they've shoved Russia entirely into China's court. So now Russia has all of the food, all of the metals, all of the oil, all of the gas, all of the minerals, things like nickel, copper, uh, red, you know, all of these things. It, it has timber. It has all of that it could possibly want overland from Russia at fairly good prices, at discounted prices, in fact. Fertilizers, chemicals, petrochemicals, all of these things it can have and more from Russia because whatever anybody wants to say about Russia, it's a, it's a natural resources superpower and, and it, it's got the full spectrum of natural resources and it's, it's one of the leading, you know, people know it's a great provider of oil and gas, but they don't know that it's the biggest grain exporter in the world. They don't know that it's one of the leading timber exporters in the world. Coal. It's a huge exporter of coal from the huge fields in the, in, in, in the Kuzbas, for example. It, it, it's a huge exporter of fertilizers. It's, it's now a big exporter of meat and other food. And it's in the process of building logistics routes itself, which we've covered before on multipolarity. We covered the, the north south trading corridor from St. Petersburg through Moscow, through the Caspian Three, through Iran. Uh, through the Caspian Sea, through Iran, as far as Mumbai, for instance. It's also building a grain corridor through Siberia into China. So Uncle Sam has kind of avoided uh, Mr. Zeihan's issues, and it gets back to uh, what we were talking about before, that the, right at the beginning of this discussion, that the U.S. can have tremendous power, but it can play the hand that's been dealt badly. So we've been right around the world with Peter Zahan tonight, and I think uh, it would be uh, apt if some of our listeners' heads were spinning at this point. So I'm just going to get straight back to the start and go through all of these questions in turn. Just give a kind of a, a top-line summary of where we are. Uh, so question one, if you'll recall, was... Owing to its unique geographic and other features, uh, the US is the only country with the ability to sustain itself as the rest of the world crumbles. I think we said that was partly true. Question two, the withdrawal of the US Navy from international shipping lanes will lead to an explosion of state and private piracy. Mainly false, I would have said. Uh, 
Thirdly, that Europe is already in a demographic death spiral, mainly false. And then fourthly, on the China question, from what I was hearing just now, it seemed that, that was almost entirely false. Is that your guy's impression? Yeah, I mean, I would say that it's mostly true that the US has unique advantages. It is questionable that the US Navy withdrawing from the sea will lead to uh, you know, a return of uh, Blackbeard and uh, brigandish nations uh, taking advantage of the sea. Uh, I think it is true that European demographics is in a bad state, but as Philip pointed out in a really perhaps the answer of the night, I thought, um, you know, the US has its own problems and much of its uh, advantages in this area is due to migration, not with uh, demographics. So that is kind of true, but it's a kind of false truth, if that makes sense. And then finally, I, I just view his views on demographics as tremendously crude. I think Philip made exactly the same point about his views on China's indebtedness. And I think that with regard to things like supply chains and China's geographical situation, that's true. But the US is kind of doing its best to solve a lot of those problems for China at the moment. So, um, yeah, that's the way I see it. So we have a kind of a top line view on Zehan now. I guess I'm just wondering, what do we think of him as a thinker? I don't know if we... uh, we wanted to be sort of extraordinarily rude about one man, but he seems like a man who has come to great prominence lately. Uh, and as we sort of alluded to, seems to extrapolate out. Uh, what is the upside of Zehan's thinking? What is the thing that he gives us that is positive and accounts for his, his reputation? I, I think he's, um, he's making what we're doing cool which is good for us, you know, he's making kind of, call it geoeconomics, you know, big picture economic geopolitical thinking, he's making that cool. Um, unfortunately, he's doing it in a very, as you say, kind of crude way. There, the, some of this stuff requires a degree of specialized knowledge, which I think we on multipolarity are blessed with, and not by coincidence, we we started the podcast because of our relative specialities. Um, I think Zayhan's kind of coming at it as a as an uber generalist, whereas we're kind of like generalists on some topics, but try and remain slightly specialist in others. And I think um, I think that's where he's falling down. But ultimately, I think what he's giving the world that is good is a um, a general picture of the emerging world order. Um, which is desperately needed right now. I mean, it's why we started the podcast, right? Yeah, I agree with that, actually. I think um, he's a very interesting thinker, and I'm actually a great fan of super generalists who have mega theories. I very much enjoyed um, uh, Strauss and Howe's The Fourth Turning. I thought that was a fascinating book. Um, and... I actually very much enjoyed uh, George Friedman's the, la- the next 100 years. Uh, Friedman was uh, Friedman was uh, the founder of Strat4, uh, for whom Zehan uh, worked, and uh, like Zehan, has gone off and done his own thing. Um, I, I prefer Friedman's ideas. I, I, again, I think he gets China perhaps wrong, although I take on board some of his his, his views of the stresses of China, but. Quite interestingly, if you go back and read the next 100 years, Friedman got a lot 
he was very prescient on um, Eastern Europe and, and, and what's happened there. So I do tend to prefer Friedman. I, I think the issue that I have with Peter Zahan is mega theories like this can, I think they're great and, 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 and they're very interesting and I like generalists, but they're really a kind of an overview of the direction things take. And I think that Friedman is, or, or at least he used to be, George Friedman used to be a lot better because he focused specifically on the geopolitics and what drives countries and the geographical and resource needs, where Zehan takes an even broader view than that. And the issue I have with Zehan is he kind of presents his extrapolations as a kind of almost a destiny, a kind of that that's written in stone that simply can't be avoided as if the the train is on the tracks and it can't be knocked off and there's no switches anywhere to put it on a different line. And that's the real issue I've got with Zehan. It's not necessarily his ideas. Uh, it, it's the way he presents them and the certitude with which he presents them. It's, um, it, it, and I, you know, I think given his kind of, you know, because of that certitude, a lot of his ideas don't stack up. Whereas if he kind of backed off a little bit and didn't present them with, you know, like this is the way it is and will be in like 50 years time, then it would be more difficult to pick holes in what he said, but then perhaps, he wouldn't be so popular as the kind of the current guy walking up and down Madison Avenue with a, a sign saying the end of the world is nigh. So if there were one thing you thought that Zehan needed to read, what would that be? I, I need not one thing to read. I think Zehan, if he's going to comment on economic issues a lot, like he needs to actually study macroeconomics. I know that sounds really snobby or maybe not study macroeconomics, but like work in a field like finance at a high level or something like that, where you kind of learn by osmosis how the macro, how the global macro economy works. There's loads of great guys in finance who probably have MBA degrees, maybe even history degrees that are, you know, they learn by osmosis just by being around it, talking about it all day. I think he needs more exposure to that. Um, the kind of seat of your pants economic theorizing it. I mean, without being too mean about it, it kind of reminds me of early days zero hedge in a sense. Um, but without the really cool, financial data from the leaked documents that Goldman and JP used to send to uh, Tyler Durden at Zero Hedge. But the, the kind of seat of your pants common sense thinking, just trust me, it does not work in economics. Economics is one of the most non-common sense disciplines in a sense that you can come across. Microeconomics about markets and stuff, yeah, sure, you can analogize to to all sorts of things. But macroeconomics is, is counterintuitive, uh, I wouldn't say difficult. It's not rocket science, but you kind of got to get a real feel for it. Doesn't mean you got to study it, although that's probably not a bad start. Um, but just kind of expose yourself to the debates taking place rather than coming up with your kind of own theory, I think is probably a better approach. It's funny because Multipolarity is quite a doomer podcast in lots of ways. And Zehan is also clearly into doom and, and and his sandwich board in the end being nigh but from a quite different direction yeah i mean i i actually think he gets a kind of a lot of the basic things right actually um i just think that some of his arguments lack subtlety 
I think some of his arguments are behind the time. Like sometimes when I read what he or, or, or listen to what he has to say about China, it feels like he's talking about the Chinese economy of 1994. He's not talking about the Chinese economy, which is, you know, global leader in telecommunications, global leader in robotics, global leader in high speed rail, global leader, right? Global leader in satellite launches, global leader in patents, global leader in STEM graduates. Like, I, I, I don't get that he kind of understands this. Uh, I think even these days they have something like, I think the US still has the most unicorn tech companies, I like tech startups valued over a billion dollars. But China is really close to that now and, and, and like rapidly accelerating. So, uh, you know, I, getting back to what he could read is, is, is things about what's going on in the world now. It's almost like he's, he's so much on a kind of like the, the, the global view of things that he can't kind of zoom into individual events. And, and, and then maybe what else he could read is like a book on probability. Like it, it, you can't, extrapolate a trend now into infinity um and you know like yeah so that again i i like a lot of the the ideas that he has i think they're great i think he gets a lot of the basics right um but on the specifics i, I i'm increasingly unsure that it matches with uh reality and of, of course the issue with a lot of predictions like this and it was the same issue with the, the you know the fourth strauss howe generational theory with the fourth turning a lot of it's quite unfalsifiable so you can kind of match events to your theory uh, come what may uh, but as i say i mean we're well past his 10 years to the chinese collapse already so any day now i'd just add that uh the multipolarity thesis is definitely falsifiable so how dare anybody say that it's not <laughs> uh yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's the classic thing of people not understanding that, that dynamic systems are dynamic and, like, the most powerful thing in economics is often just the substitution effect, isn't it? It's the sense that, like, life finds a way uh, and, and things will change in, in unpredictable and, and path-dependent ways. Well, I've had a wonderful time. Have you guys had fun? I've had fun. Of course, I always have fun with uh, you and right. <laughs> It's 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 just as much fun behind the scenes with Gavin now that people. Get yeah, I was going to gonna say, especially on the bits that we don't record, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, keeping a super secret archive of those for, um, I don't know, blackmail and uh, potentially paywalling opportunities <laughs> later down the line. If anyone wants to, you know, uh, hear about uh, the fate of Ernst Rom and uh, his peccadillos, I can, <laughs> I can sort you out. Uh, come to me after the show. So on that note, I'd like to say uh, goodbye to everyone and thanks to everyone who has sent in a question this week. If we haven't got round to your questions, we will hoard them for a future episode. For now, thank you very much and good night. Thank you.